good morning. It is a pleasure. It is a joy to get to share the word with you today. And, um, you know, I want to thank Aaron for, for all these, these months of leading us through the book of Matthew. Um, I want to, I, I want to tell you guys that when he first asked me if I would preach, my initial thought was, no, I want to hear what you have to say on this. And, um, just really appreciate the teaching. And I'll, I'll be honest with you guys that, um, maybe I have an overactive imagination, but as we've been going through the book of Matthew, which I've known since I was a child, but I've really been transported. I've really been taken there. And I find myself agreeing with the crowd and asking the same questions and saying, who is this man? Who speaks like this? Who speaks with such authority? Who says such things? And, um, and I hope you have been similarly, similarly blessed. This is not uh, uh, a good way to start. Um, just gives you a sign of how things are going to go here. Um, and I'd also like to thank Isaac for uh, actually helping me out in some research for this. So um, really appreciated that. So they say, I, I looked this up. It's been a while since I preached. It's been a couple months, maybe even more. So I, I was just looking for some advice. And they say, you should, you should lead off with a human interest picture. Uh, and a joke to kind of break the ice. So we'll start with a picture. John, if you could put the picture up. Here is a pointless picture to break the tension. John and I went for a hike yesterday. We found that. Now, I'm not a plumber, but I think I know what the problem is. And, uh, and then a joke. We'll keep this short. All right. Very good. We got the pointless picture and the joke out of the way. <laughs> um, today, we're going to be looking at Matthew 10, verses 1 through 15. Uh, go ahead, change the slide. The message goes out. The message goes out. So uh, you don't need to hear from me anymore at this point. If I could have you turn in your scripture to Matthew 10 um, and read along with us. I was telling the kids at youth group that I don't necessarily have a problem with digital Bibles. Like I can't think of an actual legitimate argue against, argument against them. My only problem as a teacher is I don't know when people have gotten to the right page, but I can hear the, the paper turning. So that's great. So let us read the text. And he called to him, his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without pay, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics and, or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment 
for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so happy, we are so grateful, we, we are overjoyed actually to, to be able to go to your word, to, to read uh, your words. And what a gift, Lord. Um, even the gods that men have invented throughout history, these false gods, people have had to beg and plead and, 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 and beg for a word from, and you give us your word freely, free to us, Lord. You have given us your word, handed down through the prophets and the apostles. And through this word, we know of Jesus. Father, so I pray today that as we, as we examine this text, um, as we learn, as we see these, these three startling things about the good shepherd, King Jesus, Lord, I pray that these truths would invade our very heart. They would move from our brain to our heart and transform us, Lord. These are attributes. These are things that demand a response, Lord. And so, Father, I pray, I don't have any better words, Father, but I just pray that you would soften us up, that you would work us over. You would change us, mold us, Father. And uh, we rejoice in what we are about to learn, Lord. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. As, as uh, Aaron mentioned earlier, what we just read, if we were to look at it simply from the standpoint of a historian or an academic, um, if we're just to look at it from that standpoint, what we read is truly historic. We are seeing the first commissioning of a group of men that from the world's point of view would go on to change the world. Uh, it is not a stretch to say that the writings that these folks would produce, the church that they would go on to establish, would change the very course of human history. There isn't a corner of the world where the effect of this church has not at least been felt. From the laws that we write, to the governments that we set up, to the very way that philosophers and people who claim to be atheists think about the very concepts of right and wrong. The very idea that there is some sort of good in the world can be traced back to the preserving, the persevering, and just the hard work of these men. Move on, Gianna. The teaching, I've summed it up basically in this. We are not academics and historians, okay? Let's just agree that. We're not. We're going to look at this as, as people of the book, followers of Christ. The teaching, the writing, the lives of the apostles was, would go on to change the very history of the world. Billions of people, whether they knew it or not, would have their lives affected in some way by the legacy of the apostles. In reality, however, the world would not be changed by the wisdom, education, power, or efforts of the apostles, but by the God they served and the message they brought, the gospel of King Jesus. I would ask you to consider the apostles for a minute. Some of them, we don't know any background about them other than what you just read. Now, many of them, as we move through the scripture, we'll get to know. And uh, Aaron, I'm going to leave that to you, brother, as you walk us through Matthew and we begin to build a picture of these fellas. But I can tell you a little bit about just what we read here. Um, also, I, 
I like numbers. So did you notice that they're paired up? I just find that interesting. How many of you have siblings? Joseph says a couple pairs of brothers there. Jesus sent brothers out into the world and they got something done together. All right. Just first thing I want to make. All right. It's not a very scholarly argument, but I'm going to throw it out there. A um, couple things I want to point out here. One, we have Simon the Zealot and Judas the Iscariot. Judas the Iscariot, we know, would go on to betray Jesus. And really, uh, he's the only one of the group who's going to see a financial gain from his association with Christ. And he's going to wind up killing himself, committing suicide. We'll talk a little bit more about the role of Jesus. And then I want to point your attention to Simon the Zealot. In the same group with Judas Iscariot and Matthew, the tax collector. Well, Matthew, we talked about, widely regarded and probably accurately so, as a co-conspirator with Rome, a co-conspirator with the occupying force, the oppressing force. That would be like a Ukrainian collecting taxes for the Russians. That would be like the British tax collectors um, in 1775. Paired up with a zealot. Well, what is a zealot? A zealot at the time were a group of folks who, in many cases, were engaged in armed rebellion against the Romans. So do you see what Jesus has done? And the rest of them, they're just a bunch of fishermen. Not dissing fishermen, but they go on to change the world. These guys do not have money. They do not have clout. They do not have power. I mean, Wall Street and guys like Jeff Bezos and, and, and uh, Elon Musk, they're spending millions trying to figure out how to influence the world, how to leave a legacy, how to change the world. And this group of fishermen, former terrorists, former co-conspirators, and this guy who's actually only in it for the money are going to be used by God to change the world. So we're left to conclude that it is not about who they are, but it is about the king that they serve and the message that they bring. And here's the main point. King Jesus, the compassionate shepherd, sends his disciples into the world with all authority to proclaim the truth that the kingdom is here. Now, what I propose that we do is that I want to walk you through this text, and there's, there's a couple questions. There's like two or three big questions that come up as we read this. We'll try to answer those, but what I want to direct your attention to is, is there's actually three things about Jesus that jump out to me in the text here. And as we um, walk through this text, we're going we're gonna to zero in on those things. And along the way, we'll answer some of the questions that arise. Sound like a deal? All right. Um, and these are the three attributes of Christ that I want you to see. One, he is a compassionate shepherd. Two, he is sovereign. All authority is his. And three, Christ is the long-awaited king. The first thing I want you to see is if, if, is, um, if you'll look back at your text, Christ, the good shepherd, cares for the infirm. This is one of the first things we see in this text. We see his compassion extended to the infirm. 
chapter 10, verse 1. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Again, he reiterates the call in um, chapter in verse 7 and proclaim as you go, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. So real quick, it's pretty obvious, pretty self-evident, but we're going to build on these things. Um, Christ shows compassion for the infirmed, for the infirmed. We've seen this already. Um, Christ is healing as he goes. Uh, the woman who had the 12-year-long the medical condition, um, the, the mother-in-law, the, the young child, it's this is nothing new. This is what Jesus has been doing. And so it's natural that he would then command his disciples to go and do this. Now, here's one of the first questions that came up to me as we read this text. Um, are we still doing this today? Well, it's worth noting that this was a specific call. This was a specific command. And it's one of the reasons I believe that we're given the exact names of who are given this call. He gave this charge to these 12 men. As we move through scripture, we, we do see some more healings. We do see some miraculous healings. We see many of these things, but it is not normal and it is not expected. And uh, as we move into the New Testament and uh, God is giving us instructions to church leadership, he does not tell the elders and the deacons to go miraculously heal people and raise the dead and these sorts of things. And quite frankly, I'm going to be honest with you, I know where I'm going. If y'all come and raise me from the dead, I'm going to be mad, okay? We're going to have words, all right? But it is not normal. And we can also look at church history. If this is what was expected of Christ's followers today, then we should be it's reasonable to look back at church history and say, in the vast majority of Christ-following churches, do they raise the dead, perform miracles on command? No. No. They don't do this. But what God does tell us to do is to lay our hands on each other when we are sick and pray for each other to pray for each other, to gather together as a body and pray. Why? Because this Jesus has compassion for the infirmed. We need to have passion for, compassion for the infirmed. And as a side note, there's no exception here for bubonic plague, Spanish influenza, you fill in the blank. Just throwing that out there. Okay, so we see from this text, Christ has compassion on the infirm. The lost sheep of Israel. Turn with me here. Uh, we saw this last week, didn't we? This is sort of the background. Uh, it, not sort of. It is the background to chapter 10. Um, if we look uh, back. Chapter 9, we talked about this two weeks ago, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Sound familiar? It's what Christ is doing. So his disciples instructed to do likewise. And look here. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It's breaking his heart. And then that marvelous uh, passage that, that Aaron talked us through, he says, you got, he calls his disciples together, he says, pray for workers for the harvest. And I think it was just a matter of minutes before he turned around and said, all right, got my workers. You guys go. The lost sheep of Israel. Look at 
look at Christ's command here. And this is going to address one of the next questions that you may have when you read this. We'll pick it up in verse five. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I want you to look on down. In verse 11, this is a little bit more obscure and we'll, we'll explain this. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. Well, my first um, point is pretty obvious. In verse five, he says, just go to the Jewish people. Just go to the Jewish people. Well, why is that? Is that because he hates the Gentiles? Is that because this message is not for them? Absolutely not. We've already seen Further back, that Jesus declared of a Gentile, the, the centurion, he said, a greater faith I have not found in all of Israel. So Jesus is available. He is, extends his grace, his mercy to the Gentiles, but he instructs the disciples to go to the people of Israel. Is this because he hates the Gentiles? No, it's because he loves the people of Israel. It's really that simple. We just saw in the past, chap uh, past chapter, it's breaking his heart to see these lost sheep. Let me read a passage from Ezra. This is God's word to the prophet on the state of the Jewish people. I think we covered some of these texts two weeks ago. Ooh. Um, Ezra 34, 7 and 8. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey, my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts. Since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and not fed my sheep. And then farther down in verse 11, he says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. He is fulfilling a promise he made through the prophet Ezra. He loves his sheep. He doesn't hate the Gentiles. Far from it. It's just with a tear in his eye. He's sending his disciples out to the lost sheep of Israel. He loves them. Now, he says, find a house that is worthy. What does that mean? And, and I bring this up because it could be misread and you could think, oh, see, he says the Jews are worthy and the Gentiles were unworthy. Well, this comes from a concept that we find in Proverbs. The notion, um, well, first, it, you, you get a fuller explanation if you turn to a parallel account in, um, in Luke 10. Isn't it interesting this account's in Matthew 10 and Luke 10? All right, never mind. Just fun. Fun with numbers. All right, I'll be good. Promise. Um, yeah, let's start in verse five. It's the same, same account. We just get a few more words, which is always helpful. And it's in a different order. Um, and just a note here, when it comes to parallel accounts in scripture, I, I think, I think, uh, Aaron covered this, but if you read one account and then you read a second account and the order's a little bit off and the words are expanded or redacted, does that mean those two accounts are wrong? No, absolutely not. Um, that just means this person over here and this person over here are relating the same story, just remembered in a different order or presented it in a different way to get it a different point. Um, so here we go. I'll pick it up. Verse five, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. 
And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon it. So a worthy house is a house that has a son of peace. Well, from Proverbs uh, 37 and also from 119.65, uh, 165, if you're to go there, and I, I highly encourage you to go there this afternoon, you will see the concept that a man who loves the law, who follows the law, is a son of peace, and their household is worthy. So he's telling the disciples, go to, to a house, find out if they know the law and they love the law. Do they know the Bible? Do they love the Bible? That's a place you want to stay. That's where you want to work from. Why? Because Jesus loves the lost sheep of Israel. There's also some other reasons that we're going to get to, and I'll explain further. I realize I talk fast. Are you all keeping up okay? All right. I should have looked at the clock when I started, and then I could pace myself, but you know. So Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, cares for the infirmed, the lost sheep of Israel, and his disciples. His disciples. This is their first mission. Now, what does he do? He says, Here's your message. It's really short. The kingdom is here. And this is where you're going to stay. You're going to stay with someone who loves the law. I'm not going to put you in the household of someone who is going to hound you day after day to recant your message. This is training. This is shepherdly care. Guys, when we go out to share the gospel, we should have shepherdly care the first time we do it. We should have it the 151st time we have we do it. This is shepherdly care. Um uh, I'm an electrician. Um, I get a new electrician. I'm not going to hand him a code book and a set of tools and say, go fix that. Boy's going to get himself blowed up. I've seen it. Um, no. Uh, there's, a, there's an apprenticeship. There's a process. There's steps. I say, here, you're going to start with this. This is a screwdriver. You turn it this way. You know, some guys need that. Um, I was that guy, but no, this is shepherdly care. It's another reason why he says, find a house that is worthy. It's for them. And we'll get to that to your King is here. And it's, it's for the, the worker. Also look at this. He's providing and teaching. If you look at your text, he says, take no bag, no gold, no silver. Don't even take extra clothes or extra shoes, or an extra walking stick. It's because he's going to provide it. He's going to provide what is needed, and he's teaching them to trust him. Put your trust and your care in me. Now, will they face adversity? Absolutely. And Aaron will get into that next week. You're welcome. So, but absolutely, they're going to face adversity. But you know what? They have a guarantee from the good shepherd that they will be taken care of. They will be provided for. And they're at least going to stay in homes with a man of peace. Also, it's worth noting um, that in Micah 5.5, 5, uh, why don't you turn there? And again, thank you for Isaac. He, he did a lot of the research for me on this. Um, Micah 5.5, 5, it's toward the end of the Old Testament. Uh, there's no 5-5. Five, five. That's because I'm looking at Nahum. What a moron. This is what happens when you get the bench warmer, guys. Start in verse 4. Tell me if this sounds like anyone you know. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty and the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall greet he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace, verse 5. And when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, and then he will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men, and they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod, and basically 
the bad guys are on the run. Christ promises and predicted to was predicted to be our peace. So it's kind of interesting when you think of that. Find a house with a man of peace, leave your peace, be the peace. It's interesting. We won't expand on that today, but there you have it. So Christ, a good shepherd, we see in this text his care for the infirmed, the lost sheep of Israel, his disciples. Uh, well, let me go back here. Um, well, the world, yes, for the world. Well, where is that, you said? I thought we were just dealing with the lost sheep of Israel. Well, look at the last verse. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now, just a little bit of background. This, the um, Sodom and Gomorrah um, were two cities that were completely wiped off the face of the earth because of their wickedness. Because of their wickedness. Uh, now, we don't even really know where those cities exactly were. We, we have some guesses. But at best, they're uh, little more than a byword. Uh, for licentious, uh, evil behavior, and at worst, a contentious talking point with unbelievers. But the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, despite all their wealth and their influence and power, they're gone. They were wiped out. Fire and brimstone literally rained down from heaven um, in a scene that we can only probably compare with nuclear holocaust. Um, or the worst disaster movie you ever saw, except this is reality. This is history. And Christ is saying the towns that reject the message of the gospel face a fate worse than that. And is he saying this vindictively? Is he saying this out of spite? Absolutely not. That is uncharacteristic of Christ, as uncharacteristic of Christ. We've already seen that he is saying all this, that his heart breaks, that he says all this, if I may, with a tear in his eye. If your child was out playing in the street, you wouldn't go to him and say, um, if I could pick on um, Chloe, can I pick on you for a minute? Cool. So if Chloe was out playing in the street, and you all saw it, you wouldn't go out there and say, Chloe, you know, you, you know what? You, you're good. Never mind. You're good. I don't want to scare you. I don't want to upset you. You're fine. You're good. No, you'd run out there and say, you're going to get hit by a car. And that may scare her. That may offend her parents. You know, they're like, well, I'm her father. You know, you, no, you're a rational thinking human being. You're going to say that child's in trouble. I don't care if I'm going to offend him. I don't care. I love that little image bearer of God. I'm going to get them out of there. If you go to a doctor, you know, doctors have made a promise to care, to do good. The doctor gets those test results. Mr. Atkins, uh, the results are in, and yeah, you're fine. You're good. You're good. Go home. No, the doctor's going to say, this is going to be hard to hear, but you're fat, Mr. Atkins, and uh, your, blood, your cholesterol is high. Why? Why would he say those things? Because he loves me. He cares for me. Christ is not saying, you know what? You know what? Those towns, if they reject you, it's going to be worse for them. No. Christ is pleading much as he did when he rode in to Jerusalem. And he looked at the crowds. And his heart cried out. And he said, oh, Israel, how I've longed to gather you to me like a mother hen. 
he looks at the world and he says, if you reject the gospel, it is worse for you than Sodom and Gomorrah. To omit that is not loving and affirming. That is the worst kind of self-serving selfishness. To omit the hard truth. And so I propose to you that Christ, the good shepherd, in telling the disciples this, in telling the world this, is displaying compassion by revealing the truth. And then our next attribute of Christ that I think we see very clearly here, and it doesn't need much explanation, is he displays his authority. First, over every infirmity. I mean, it's really that simple. He says, go and heal every infirmity. You don't need me to reread it. You can read it. It's there. He didn't send them to medical school, okay? He didn't give them a crash course in first aid. He didn't pull out an AED and say, okay, you're going to watch this 10-minute video. Now you know how to use this. You are the new company AED operator. If you know what that is, you know what I'm talking about, and you've all sat in those classes. <laughs> you know, we're going to give you we're going to give you a, a bright pink hard hat. No, he transfers authority to heal every of infirmity. He displays his authority over satanic forces. He tells them to cast out demons. I, I don't even know what to say about that other than he displays authority over satanic forces. If you've been left on the fence wondering who this Christ is, and if he was just an exceptional man, this should eradicate that. He has the authority over satanic forces. We saw this earlier when he healed the, the, the two demonic possessed men. I hope you've been paying attention. He displays his authority over the choices of men. And this gets to one of the big questions here. Maybe it was one of the first questions that popped up when we started reading. What about Judas? Judas betrayed them. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Jesus Christ sent him on a mission, gave him power, and accomplished his work. If you think you are going to derail the work of the God of heaven and earth for 30 pieces of silver or for any price, my friend, you are mistaken. You do not have the ability, I do not have the ability to, do, to derail God's decrees, and God's plans. And as a side note, how many times, I want you to just reflect, how many times do we kind of, we run into a situation where someone turned out not to be a believer or they turned out not to be the person we thought they were, so we throw away all the ministry that was done. We, we said, well, that wasn't a work of, it was all a lie because that person was a sinner or that person didn't really believe. Or maybe as a parent, we sit back and we weep and we think my efforts were wasted because my child has rejected Christ. That's real pain. That's, 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 that's something we really wrestle with, isn't it? I hope this, this finds hope for you. I hope you can see a little sliver of, of the goodness of God and his absolute sovereignty over the choices of men. Let's keep moving. We talked about this last week. We should talk about this every week. He tells him to raise the dead. 
Again, he doesn't teach him how to do CPR. He doesn't teach him some conjuring tricks. No, he gives them authority to raise the dead. To raise the dead. Who but the God of heaven and earth has that authority? Let's just... Let's just look at the text real quick, make sure it's there. Uh, Verse 7, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper, raise the dead. It's there. He told them to do it. And you know what happens? They go out and they do it. They raise the dead. My friends, if we were following a savior who couldn't raise people from the dead, who did not raise himself from the dead, we need to find something else to do on Sunday mornings. Amen? Amen. Discipling is one of the most recent books that I've written. It was uh, originally... Christ is the long-awaited king. Now, we've already established, we see it in the text, that, that he sends the disciples with a very short message to people of the book, people who already know the law, to the Jewish people. And his message is simply this, verse 7, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You could you could move on to the next one. Thank you to Gianna for running my slides because I'm incompetent. So thank you. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, what does that mean? I, I hope you've been getting a sense of that as we go through the book of Matthew, which is about the king and his kingdom. But what did that mean to the original audience? So if someone showed up on the door of a good man of peace, a man who believed the word, a worthy household, they believe the word, he's raising his children in the book, he's awaiting the Messiah, that message is essentially that the prophecies are being fulfilled. And I'll give you a couple of these prophecies. There's so many of them. Uh, we'll start in 2 Samuel 7.12. This was a word given to King David as he was getting older and getting ready to die. 2 Samuel Verse uh, chapter 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then again, another one in Isaiah 9, 6, a prophecy of this coming king. I hope you've heard this this passage before. Isaiah 9, 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then finally, uh, we'll turn to Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Do you get chills when you read that? I want you to realize this was written six to 700 years before the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So when the disciples showed up, cleansing the lepers, healing the sick, raising the dead, and proclaiming the kingdom is here, the man of peace would say, the king is here who will establish an everlasting throne. He will have salvation. And man, if he can heal the sick, if he can cleanse the leper, if he can raise the dead, this must be the coming Messiah. Oh, if he would just come in on a donkey. Or maybe they sat there saying, 
I wonder what that prophecy means. Maybe the donkey's this, maybe the... And then a couple years later, what are they going to see? Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a colt, a foal, of a donkey. Now that gives me chills 2,000 years later. And I know how the book ends. Just imagine those faithful believers waiting for the Messiah to appear. They've probably heard rumors. They've heard of John the Baptist proclaiming, prepare a way. They've probably heard, heard things and seen things and a bit of an uproar. And then this, these men show up performing these miracles saying, the king is here. Jesus Christ is the long prophesied coming king. I hope you can see that. Don't just take my word for it. I want you to go home and tear into the scriptures. Look at the Old Testament. Look at the New Testament. See if these things pan out. And I want to close by asking you three questions, kind of bring this all together. We've, we've mentioned a lot of things, but the question is, so what? So what? And I've boiled it down to three questions. Well, really four. I mean, one I want to ask myself as a dad, as the head of my household, is, is my house a worthy house? Just something to consider. Do I believe the word? Do I find my worth in Christ? Am I teaching my kids? Am I helping my wife to understand? Am I listening to her when she explains things to me? Am I? Here's my main three questions. Do you trust Jesus with your infirmity? Do you trust the God of heaven with your infirmity? COVID. Cancer. I don't know what your infirmity is. I don't know what infirmity you're fearing. Is it dementia? I, I don't know. Is it something you've imagined? These fears are real. The severity is real. But I want you to know that we serve. We worship. We have been rescued. And we are loved by the compassionate shepherd who has displayed and continues to display authority and sovereignty over all affirmity. All of it is his to deal with. And I want you to take great comfort in that. Go to the doctor. Get the diagnosis. Take the steps. Do the things and know that Christ has authority over all infirmity. You are loved, brothers and sisters, and you are cared for. And he has a plan for you. I might not like it. You may not like it. But rest assured, it is a good and glorious plan. Two, does our heart break for the lost and the infirmed. Are we hiding the truth from folks because we don't want to offend them? Are you like me sometimes? And this is hard to admit, but it's true. Sometimes I get very apathetic and I just don't care. And then I read how Christ's heart broke for those who would kill him. He died for those who would pierce his sides and nail him to a tree. His heart breaks. Oh, Israel, how I've longed to gather you to me. It has to be love. Why else would he go to that tree? It has to be love. And I am undone when I consider that. And just the infirm, just the plain old sick. 
Just not the plain old sick. That sounds rude. I'm sorry. Sick people, the infirmed. Do we care for them? Do we love them? Do we take care of them? Or are we just tired of them? Jesus didn't have to go around healing people and raising the dead. He had a big work to do that involved suffering for the sins of all mankind to rescue them for all of eternity. It's the biggest job that has ever been. It is the most noble task that ever was. And he took time to heal people who were blind, who were paralyzed, who were bleeding. He could have easily and justifiably said, I have a much better work to do, woman. I am on a mission. But that's just, and he cares. So does our heart break for the lost and for the infirmed? And then finally, have you bowed the knee to King Jesus? Have you bowed the knee to King Jesus? At verse 15, where will you be found on the day of judgment? Have you bowed the knee to King Jesus? You know, I don't own my next breath. You don't own your next breath. We've already determined that life, death, and all infirmity infirmity is in God's hands. As is the choices of man, the day of judgment, all of that resides in God's hands. But he does call you to a response. He does come to us with a tear in his eye, a burden in his heart, truth on his lips, and all authority and says, the kingdom is at hand. Have you bowed the knee to King Jesus?